Amen. Give it up for Jesus this morning, King Jesus. Come on. Wow. Okay. He's robbed the grave. Hey, that's awesome. Hey, praise the Lord. Yes. Yes. It's like we're in some kind of, I don't know, high liturgical church or something. Don't clap. Whatever you do, don't clap. Good morning, friends and family. How are, how are you guys this morning? You well? Yeah? Awesome. Um, are you guys getting excited for Thanksgiving on Thursday? Yes. I'm excited. Looking forward to eating a lot of food with friends and family. It's going to be a blast. Um, quick note, I wanted to share with you guys a praise report. I think this is beautiful. Um, I shared this in our prayer huddle this morning, which, by the way, I don't know if you guys know this. We always gather every Sunday morning at 915 to pray together. Uh, to intercede on behalf of our gathering and to pray specifically for renewal, for revival, for awakening. Um, and I shared a praise report this morning where this past week I was hanging out with a pastor friend of mine, a couple pastor friends of mine actually, and one of the pastors um, has a granddaughter who has um, special needs and has already had a granddaughter pass away a few years ago. So he's kind of had a tough experience as a grandfather. And the granddaughter now with special needs, um, they were afraid that she was having symptoms of potential blindness, that she was going blind in both eyes. And he was pretty broken. He started crying and sharing with us what was going on. And um, to be honest with you, over the last month, I've seen God miraculously heal a couple of people in real life, like physical healing, back pain gone, crazy cool things, presence of God manifests itself, healing gone, praise the Lord, it's amazing. Um, and I said, well, we need to just start praying. We're going to start praying right now for healing for this daughter that, that the Lord loves dearly, this um, daughter of the king, you know, and your granddaughter. And so uh, we started praying because there was a, a, a appointment she had, an appointment that afternoon at 1.15, and it was going to be a big-time appointment for her. So we started praying, and I said, I pray in Jesus' name that we would get a good report this afternoon, where we would see a miracle take place. We'd see healing take place in this beloved daughter. Of the king. And uh, we started praying, and a few hours go by. At three o'clock, I get a text message from Larry, who's my friend, my pastor mentor, and he said, I praise his name. And my first thought was, like, Are you praising him in a storm, or are you praising him in the midst of like this cool celebration moment? Like, I didn't, you know, some people praise him in the storm, like, it's tough, it's hard, I get it, whatever, but I'm also praising him because I'm celebrating. I didn't know what was going on. So I'm like, Well, what, what happened? And he said, that the doctors dismissed every symptom of blindness in this girl's eyes. And I was like, come on, Holy Spirit. And I say that to say a lot of us, if we're not careful, we're missing out on little miracles throughout the day because we're not operating out of just this constant communion with the Father and being receptive what the Spirit's doing. And it's been wild to see the Spirit move in radical ways. Um, even last night, I had a short little prayer, and I said, Lord, I pray. I want to I hear some good news in five minutes. I know that sounds radical, but I'm like, five minutes. I want to hear something. Two minutes go by. Guess what? Boom, answer prayer. It was crazy, you know? And so uh, I'm just saying, don't miss out on the kingdom. I don't want you missing out on little miracles throughout the day um, because it helps you live a life of gratitude and thanksgiving to, um, to King Jesus. And so just wanted to share that with you guys. Um, today, we wrap up our busy teaching series. You guys enjoyed this? teaching series has been relevant for you in your life. Some of you, I think it's everyone, to be honest with you. Um, we're going to wrap it up today, but next week, I'm looking forward to it because next week we begin the Advent season. Advent means to come, 
And we celebrate that Christ has come, but also that Christ is coming, that he is returning. And we press into that reality. And the universal church calendar kind of kicks off with the season of Advent. And so we will light a candle each week that represents a different aspect of the Advent season. And next week, we kick it off with the hope candle. Um, But I'm really excited because um, Morgan Harvey is preaching for the first time (laughs) next Sunday. She's bringing the fire next Sunday, and so I'm looking forward to that. So you're going to want to make sure you're here to uh, encourage her, support her, and uh, looking forward to Morgan teaching. I don't think she wanted me to share that, but um, (laughs) I'm I'm sorry, not sorry, you know. But uh, let's hop into the scriptures this morning. We've been in Luke chapter 10. Let's go ahead and go there. Luke chapter 10, verse 38 through 42. Luke chapter 10, verse 38 through 42. I'm going to read it for us. Matter of fact, if you're able, can you stand for the reading of the scriptures? I just feel like I want to read the scriptures and have everyone stand this morning, just out of reverence for the word of God. All right, Luke chapter 10, verse 38 through 42, it says this. It says, as Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You are worried and upset about many things. But few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jesus, we thank you for your love and your grace this morning. Meet with us here in a radical way as we gather as the people of God, family, brothers and sisters, guests, and we experience your radical presence this morning in a real and radical way. Help us to not miss out on little miracles throughout the day. Help us to step into the throne room with boldness and confidence because of the blood of Jesus. Help us to know the authority that we have been given to experience the kingdom of God now on earth as it is in heaven. We love you. Meet with us here in Jesus' name. Amen. may be seated. In 2007, there was a violin player and went into the D.C. Metro a DC metro station, substate, subway station, and began playing his violin. And for about 45 minutes or so, um, about 1,097 people, that's like the exact number, not about, that's the exact number, 1,097 people um, went past this young man playing his violin in the middle of this subway station. And only six people stopped to engage this violin player as he was playing in the metro station. Um, And what's fascinating is that come to find out, the young man who was playing in this subway station with all these hundreds and hundreds of people walking past him on this morning commute time in the subway station, this violin player was a guy by the name of Joshua Bell. Joshua Bell is probably one of the most well-known violin players in the world. And just a couple nights before, I played a show in Boston, sold out the whole theater where the average ticket price was about $100. 
He was also playing a violin worth $3.5 million in a subway station. And he managed, over the course of 45 minutes, to collect a few dollars and a little bit of change with six people who stopped, primarily being children, to engage the world, one of the world's greatest violin players, playing one of the most expensive pieces of music uh, and instrument in the world. And I found that to be interesting because it was a uh, study done by the Washington Post. It was this sociological experiment. And yet, for 45 minutes, people walked right past one of the greatest violin players in the world and didn't even notice, did not even stop. People walked right past him over and over in pursuit of the next thing to do, the next place to be. Busyness, as we talked about last week, pulls us out of the present because we're so focused on things that were supposed to be done yesterday or things that we have to get done tomorrow. Busyness pulls us out of the present, which in turn forces us to miss out on the presence. It makes stopping and listening almost impossible. Our life is like the constant movement of a paintbrush on some canvas with no awareness of what it is we are actually painting. That's our life. Constant brushstrokes on a canvas, but we have no clue at all what we are painting. Uh, last Saturday night, my brother and I were at our home, and so it's on Netflix. It's with some Bob Ross on Netflix. Did you know they have all the Bob Ross episodes on Netflix? It's incredible. You want to have a moment of just tranquility? Watch Bob Ross. And this, this man is just painting this this the scene and you're like this is incredible we went from something totally abstract to this like cabin in the woods with the mountain like it's just wild you know and he just makes you feel so at peace but all along while he's painting he knows what it is he's painting he knows the direction that he's going it's not just mindless strokes of a paintbrush he knows where he's going for a lot of us we're painting in life but we have no clue what it is we're actually painting because we're so hurried so rushed and so Busy. Not only is there no awareness, but when we are hurried, we actually miss out on the beauty that is right in front of us. We're like those in the bus station, passing Joshua Bell playing this $3.5 million violin. A young man who sells out shows wherever he goes. And we miss out because we aren't aware. We're caught up in the rat race of busyness and hurry. When we look at the Martha and Mary story, we have to acknowledge that we live in Marthaville, right? We live in a Martha world. Everywhere we turn, the world looks like Martha. It's busy, hurried, rushed, in need of more time, living a life where we must reorient our time so that we don't miss out on the better thing. We live in a rushed and hurried world. Russian hurried society. We live in a Martha world. But I find it so interesting that Martha, in the text, intentionally calls Jesus Lord. She acknowledges him as Lord, and we can assume there was a relationship prior to this encounter in the home. Matter of fact, if you go into John, 
And you all know the story of Lazarus. Maybe a lot of you do or don't. Lazarus was someone that Jesus raised from the dead, raised from the grave. Lazarus was Martha and Mary's brother. So they have this kind of tight connection with Jesus, and she calls him Lord. But what's fascinating, this is wild, is that Martha's name is the feminine for the word master or Lord in the Aramaic. In the Aramaic, her name, Martha, is the feminine for master or Lord. Did you know that if we live a life of hurry and busyness, you are choosing to be your own Lord or master? Us, then you are choosing, if you're living a life of busy, busyness and hurry and being rushed, then you are choosing to be your own Lord or master. We see that in Martha because she's choosing something other than the presence of Jesus. She is choosing to do these things in the kitchen, preparing things that are good, but she hasn't chosen the better thing. And because of that, she has now placed herself in the category of Lord. But isn't it fascinating? That's what her name actually means. That's what her name actually means. Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Now, notice this isn't a command. He's not saying you shouldn't. What he's saying is you can't. Jesus is just speaking truth. He's saying that you as a human being cannot serve two masters. He's not giving a command. He's just sharing fundamental truth. You can't serve two masters. And for Martha, in this moment, we kind of see a microcosm of a larger problem in our culture and society where we try to serve two masters, ourselves and the Lord. We call him Lord with our lips, but live a life that points to ourselves as master. Ourselves as Lord. Mary's name, on the other hand, Some scholars believe it to have been derived from an Egyptian name meaning beloved or simply love. That's what Mary's name means if you look back into the uh, Egyptian backstory of the word Mary. So we see this kind of contrast between Martha and Mary. And we spent a majority of our time looking at Martha so far, looking at the bad news, right? Looking at our life and the hurry and the busyness and things we got going on, the chaos of life. that are, We're really just, just inflicting violence on our soul with this busyness all around us. So now let's look at this kind of counter approach from the young lady named Mary. There are two things that Mary does in this passage. There's really three, but I've kind of boiled it down to two. Two things, and that helps us kind of look at the counter approach to Jesus. Because in the story, Jesus is the focal point, and we have two human beings with different approaches to Jesus in the room. Now, hear, hear me out. Both of these sisters proclaim Jesus to be Lord. They both love him. They're both following him, but they have different approaches to him in the room. He's the focal point, but Martha has an approach, has an approach, and Mary has an approach. So now we get a chance to look at the approach from Mary. The first thing that we noticed in the passage from Mary is that we see that she's sitting and sits. We see that she's sitting at the feet of Jesus, but before she sits, we have to understand that she stopped doing whatever it was that she was 
doing. There's a good chance, and we don't know for certain, but there's a good chance that Mary was in the kitchen with Martha previously. Yet when Jesus enters in the home, she stops. She stops. We've talked some about the idea of Sabbath. The word Sabbath, as we have mentioned before, literally means to stop. It means to stop, specifically stop working. The Sabbath isn't so much a day as it is a way of life. Sabbath isn't so much a day as it is a way of life. Yes, it is a day for us. It's a holy day. But it really comes out of a way of life, taking time daily to stop. Because think about it. If your life is rushed in a hurry and you come to that day, you're basically slamming on brakes. You'll find yourself having even more to do because you didn't have a lifestyle of stopping the other six days of the week. So it kind of trickles into the seventh day, finding yourself having to go to the grocery store, running some errands, doing things that are not restful and or are not worship. Sabbath really is a way of life. One of the many misconceptions in our society, in our culture, is that we work to rest. We work so that work is a means to rest. Is it not? We work so that or or, or for rest. However, in the ancient Hebrew world, you work out of rest. Different paradigm. Work so that you can rest or work out of rest. And even in the Jewish worldview, the Hebraic worldview, the day began, and even still does in Jewish tradition, the day begins when the sun goes down. That's when the day begins. Matter of fact, if you go into the creation story and look through Genesis chapter 1, you will read something that goes like this. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. There was evening and there was morning the fourth day. I had never seen this before at all. But what it's saying is that the day begins with evening, not with morning. But for us in our American Western worldview, our day begins by working, by getting up. That's why the sun gives off a a blue light in the morning. That kind of gets us going. That wakes us up. Same thing with your phone. Blue light wakes you up. Whereas the sun going down is more of an orange tint, which releases melatonin in your body and helps you to slow down. Helps you to rest. Not only did the day begin with evening, Adam began his entire human experience. He kicked off humanity by resting for a full day. Because he was born on the sixth day, and the Lord rests on the seventh day. Meaning that Adam spent his whole first full day as a human being resting and delighting in the goodness of God. He didn't wake up that day with his alarm going, eh, 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 eh. time to get out there and start naming some animals. Time to start trimming back those bushes. Time to go fishing. No, no, no. He, wake, he wakes up and he delights for a whole 24-hour period. He experiences the goodness of the Lord. His whole life begins out of rest. And as much as we like the idea of working to rest, we aren't built that way. We aren't built with that kind of paradigm, working to rest. We're actually built 
out of rest. CNBC reported earlier in 2019 that only 28% of Americans plan to max out their vacation days. They say that the average American worker gets 10 days of paid time off in America. And on average, Americans leave nine days of paid vacation off. They just leave it. They don't even touch it. The report says that 4% won't use any vacation days at all. My wife was telling me last night when she was working at RSM, which is a public accounting firm here in downtown, that an accounting manager there, a public tax manager, they would give unlimited vacation days because they know than those at the bottom level. It's a false perk. Is that not wild and fascinating? 28% of Americans plan to not max out their vacation days. We're planning to max out their vacation days. So 72% of us aren't maxing out our vacation days. Fascinating. So then you're like, well, that seems odd because that ain't me, you know? But here's what I'm noticing, what we do in our culture. What we do in our culture is we do these one or two day getaways with friends, going to concerts and going to cities and doing these quick trip places, trying to get things done. And then we come back realizing I'm still exhausted. I just traveled with four of my best friends to wherever, and I'm still tired. I went to a concert last night in Raleigh. I'm still tired. I took a little two-day spurt. I'm still exhausted. How many of you have been on vacation? You come back and you're still tired. That's because we've built this culture of this little one-day getaway, two-day getaway. They come back, you're still kind of tired. They say that your brain doesn't even begin to fully rest until day eight of vacation. Fascinating. But we think we're doing something good by doing these little two-day getaways. And I'm, I'm convicted of this personally. Totally convicted of it. We do these little one-day getaways, yet we aren't ever truly stopping to rest. We're still going and doing. Going and, they're good things. They're things we enjoy, but we're going and doing, going and doing. And here's what it also does. We, we go and do these one-day getaways. Friday comes. We're like, I'm not taking any PTO, I guess. So we take this little Saturday-Sunday deal. And so not only are we only doing a quick little getaway, but it pulls us out of the gathering of the saints. pulls us out of gathering together with the body on Sunday morning. And you think you're resting, but you're not. You're still going, and your schedule's still pulling you. And it's creating violence on your soul. Because we have a rhythm of constant going. We have chosen good things, but not the better thing, which is a rhythm or lifestyle of stopping. The second thing that she does in this story is that she listens. She listens. In Luke chapter 10, it says in verse 39, she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. Not only does she stop, she sits at his feet and listens. Now, this was normative for disciples of rabbis in the first century, but so countercultural and radical for a woman to sit at the feet of a rabbi. She is listening, not just in this kind of ooh and ah moment where she's like, man, Jesus is so beautiful. I'm just googly-eyed at Jesus. 
She is sitting at his feet to learn as a Talmudine or a disciple. You don't understand how countercultural. The reason why Martha is so upset is that Mary has gone against cultural norms. Mary, by the culture, is supposed to be in the kitchen. There is female parts of the home, male parts of the home. You got to understand a society that's high patriarchy, where women are, are borderline with no voice. I mean, they have no they have no say in court, things of that nature. And yet, we see a countercultural move from Mary going into this room with men, and Jesus says, "What she has chosen the better thing." She's where she needs to be, meaning that she is sitting at his feet to learn in order to be a disciple and even more so learn to teach other disciples as well. We see in Acts that the Apostle Paul sat at the feet of Gamaliel, a famous rabbi in the first century. You sit at the feet of a rabbi to learn and to listen and to put into practice what is being taught. Busy. Busyness is a form of noise, is it not? Some of you, you have the loudest life because you're so busy. Busy is a form of noise. But instead of occasional noise, it is a perpetual rhythm of noise. It's a perpetual rhythm of noise. Those hundreds of individuals who walked past Joshua Bell in that subway station, they could hear, but they weren't listening. It was just noise. How often do you sit in your living room with no noise whatsoever? No TV, no music, just silence. I even find it fascinating, like honestly for us who, who, who maybe run some, I, I've been trying to, the Lord's really been trying to get me running. Um, it's taken a miracle, seriously. But it's weird how, like, we, a lot of us can't run without music. You know that? I mean, think about now. We have ear pods with no, like, cords, so they can stay in your ears all the time. I, I think it's interesting. You're out in public at the mall, out at Friendly Center, and people are walking, doing their, doing their deal, and they got the pods in. I'm, that annoys the mess out of me. It's even worse when you see somebody with, like, Beats by Dre on, and they're just walking from place to place. That's, the, that's just a picture of the culture we live in. We can't stop the noise. We constantly have to be hearing something. Last night, my wife and I sat in our living room, and it was quiet enough to hear our woodwick candle. Here's a challenge for you. Go buy a woodwick. First of all, they smell fantastic. Get you a Fraser fir candle for the Christmas season. Put it in your living room and count the, many, the times throughout the week where you actually heard the woodwick where you could hear the silence. It's a beautiful noise. But a lot of us have this constant noise in our life. In John chapter 15, Jesus, in what's called the upper room discourse, he calls us and his disciples to abide. That's where the Vine College Ministry kind of got their identity from. John 15, abiding in the vine. In other words, orient our living around Jesus himself. Dwell in his presence. Abide. Make a residence in his home. And he in your home. You can't abide and not take time to listen. Listen. 
Silence feels awkward for a lot of us. You ever been in a group setting and you get silent and you have that one person who always speaks up because they just can't handle the silence and they just start saying random things and you're like, oh, that's kind of interesting. Sitting in silence is not normal. Ruth Haley Barton says this about silence. In silence, we become quiet enough to hear a voice that is not our own. We are starved for quiet, to hear the sound of sheer silence that is the presence of God himself. I love that recently someone asked, a few years ago, I guess, asked um, Mother Teresa. They said, so Mother Teresa... When you, when you talk to God, what do you say to him? And she says, nothing. And you're like, what? And then like, well, what does he say to you? And she says, nothing. And you're like, this is not right. Wrong answer, Mother T, okay? <laughs> I know in Cal painting, we're talking to Jesus, okay? But what the image that she was painting was about really is that your ability to be silent with someone points to your level of intimacy. I've shared this before, maybe in a gathering or in conversation, but if I was to go on a eight-hour road trip with one of you who I don't really know that well or some random person on the side, of the, the side of the road, if I were to go on a road trip with that person, I would talk the whole time. And so would you, because you're like, I don't know this person, so I'm just going to keep whatever, sports, weather, you know, fashion, hello. Candles, why not? You know? But you're going to talk the whole time because you don't know the person. However, if you go with someone you're close to, if I go with my wife, we go on an eight-hour road trip, there's going to come a point in time on the road trip where for maybe 30 minutes, an hour, two hours, where there's just silence. It shows your level of intimacy with the person, and the Lord himself wants intimacy with you. He wants to sit sometimes in the silence with you. We need and we must create space to stop Sit and listen. Many Christians call this a quiet time. In the tradition that I grew up in, they would refer to it as quiet time. Some of you grew up in youth groups where they said TOG, time alone with God. That's the acronym that was used in my youth group growing up, TOG. Many Christians call this quiet time. Our charismatic brothers and sisters call this the secret place. You heard, them, you heard the charismatics? Mmm. I can already sense the secret place now. You know? They talk about soaking in the presence of God. You're like, I already took a shower this morning, you know? (laughs) Our Catholic friends call it the contemplative life. Brother Lawrence, in his classic journals, calls it the practice of the presence of God. You know, notice something that's unique about these three elements of stop, listen, and sit or stop, sit, and listen. There's something unique about these three elements. It doesn't involve doing anything. It doesn't involve doing anything. Dallas Willard, who wrote The Spirit of the Disciplines, has two primary categories of disciplines or spiritual practices. Disciplines of engagement and disciplines of abstinence. Disciplines of engagement, things that you do, participate in, Scripture, um, maybe it's service, um, it could be praying out loud, um, disciplines of engagement. These are things you do. And then there are disciplines of abstinence. And he says this about disciplines of abstinence. 
Disciplines of abstinence are designed to help us remove destructive and unhelpful things from our lives through acts that force us to stop, wait, remove, or eliminate. Discipline of abstinence. These are things we just stop doing to engage in the presence of the Lord. A lot of us are caught up in disciplines of engagement, which are beautiful, but for some of us, we need to stop, sit, and listen. You know, one of these is simplicity. Living a life of simplicity, which in a materialistic, consumeristic culture is very challenging. Is it not? I mean, Amazon can have stuff to your door in like 24 hours. It's wild. And here's the deal, too. Coming up this Thursday night, Thursday now, you will hear people talk about going out shopping for Black Friday and getting prepared. I mean, Black Friday is like two days now. Is that not wild? First day ever that's 48 hours. Insane. They'll go out shopping, buying all kinds of stuff. You know, it's crazy. Just go look at our culture. Go out, start by a Target or something. It's wild, you know? But simplicity, it's a countercultural way of living. So I did something a couple weekends ago as a way of trying to step into a, a simple way of living. And one of those things is to minimize your clothing. Now, listen, in the eighth grade, in the eighth grade, I got voted best dressed. So uh, I like clothes. I like a sense of style. I like shoes. I like everything has to do with, you know, apparel. Um, where's Chad at? Chad Curran. Chad Curran and I can resonate with fashion and the design, apparel, love clothing. Uh, his closet's much more organized than mine, I will say that. Um, but what I did was I went through my closet and started picking out the things that I don't wear and don't need and got rid of them. Got rid of shoes, got rid of clothing, stuff I, I, haven't, I haven't worn in years. Began to simplify my life. And it was beautiful. That's just an example of something that you can do as a way to simplify your life. Get rid of some of your clothing. For some of you, you have other things. I don't know what it is, but you can minimize. Minimize. So these are simply spaces. These are spaces that are designed to help us be intimate with Jesus, be intimate with the presence of the Lord, to stop, to sit, and listen. But we aren't simply looking to create a, a compartmentalized life. We're not trying to create a compartmentalized life, which is one of the greatest dangers to our discipleship to Jesus is to compartmentalize our life. Everything in your life is impacting your spiritual life because it is your life. If you were to ask Jesus, hey, Jesus, Yeshua, what's up, bro? How's your spiritual life? He would be like, what are you talking about? You mean my life? My life in total? You don't, you don't compartmentalize separation between sacred and secular. Now, there are things in our world that doesn't necessarily mean they are sacred, but there is no divide between the sacred and the secular. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. There are kingdoms in this world that have not yet succumbed to the sacred, but this is the world we live in. It's all spiritual. Everything you do is a spiritual discipline. Everything matters. You don't compartmentalize your life. Jesus never compartmentalized. When the spirit comes to dwell in you, you can compartmentalize. He is with you 24-7. So when we look at this, we want to figure out a new approach to living, a new approach to living. And we've been reading Matthew 11, 28 through 30 as kind of the antidote to the busy life, as kind of the antidote for the hurried life. So go ahead and turn with me to Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 through 30. These are a couple of verses, three verses that I think you should memorize by heart. 
memorize these three words or these three verses and words of Jesus by heart. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Notice it's a promise. Notice the literary makeup of the text. Does it say you might, you will find rest for your souls? For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is Jesus' call in the midst of the chaos. This is his call in the midst of the busy, hurried life. However, it isn't just one call. It is actually two calls. The first call in the text is come to me. It's a call to intimacy. The first call of Jesus is always to himself. It's always to himself. Matthew 4, come follow who? Me. It's a a call to intimacy, always. Call to relationship. The second call in the text is take my yoke. Take my yoke, which is a call to imitate. We have a call to intimacy and a call to imitate. Throughout the scriptures and the the gospel, Jesus calls folks to himself as well as says, here is a new way of living. Here's my teaching. Practice these teachings. Imitate me. He was a rabbi, so the disciples would imitate their rabbi. And a yoke, which a lot of us have read this. I know that we had a city group this past week was processing the idea of the yoke. Like, what is this? It seems paradoxical to me. A yoke in the first century had two different meaning, uh, meanings, one physical and one kind of metaphorical. It represented the burden of the Torah or the Jew- Jewish law, the Hebraic law, the burden of the Torah. It's a set of teachings, sometimes specific to each rabbi. Each rabbi had their own interpretation of the Old Testament text, their own interpretation of the Hebrew Bible. And so it, w- it would represent kind of the burden or the weight of those teachings, It also represented, in the natural, a wooden cross piece that would fasten over the necks of two cattle and attach to a plow or a cart. So a yoke was an actual instrument that would be used to um, put two cattle together and attach themselves to a plow or a cart. They functioned kind of like um, form-fitting guides, Form-fitting guys. And when we read this first, we're like, okay, Jesus is like, take, get rid of the burden, get rid of the, the weight, but put this yoke on yourself. And you're like, that, seems, that doesn't make sense to me, Jesus. Like, that seems like it's a lot of weight. You're like, I don't, I don't want a yoke in the chaos. You know, I don't want a yoke on my shoulders, on my neck. You're like, I, I want, I'm trying to escape the chaos, you know? Like, anybody trying to escape the busyness? You're trying to escape the hurry? You're trying to escape the chaos of life? And therein lies our problem. Therein lies our problem. Many of us read this wanting an escape from the tiring, burdensome, busy, hurried way of life. Yet, Jesus doesn't offer an escape. He offers a new piece of equipment. Jesus doesn't offer an escape. He offers a new piece of equipment. The theologian Frederick Dale Bruner says this. He says, a yoke is a work instrument. Thus, when Jesus offers a yoke, he offers what we might think tired workers need least. They need a mattress or a vacation, not a yoke. 
But Jesus realizes that the most restful gifts he can give the tired is a new way to carry life, a fresh way to bear responsibilities. How beautiful is that? Articulating the role of the yoke. Essentially, he is saying, take on my way of living. Be bound to me. The yoke represents submission. Submit to me in my ways. Be bound to me. It was fascinating to read that two oxen are chosen to share a yoke in the first century. The first is an older, seasoned ox. He is trained and hardy from years of routine. The second is a new, young ox. He has potential, but is inexperienced. By sharing the same yoke with a veteran workhorse, the elder trains the young. That's the idea that Jesus is saying. He's saying, I'm the elder. I'm the one teaching. Now yoke yourself to me. Be bound to me in my way of living. And you experience the good life. You experience the good life. I have this image for us as we talk about compartmentalization, because what we do, like I said earlier on, is we compartmentalize our life so often in our culture. And so if you take a look at the screen, this is kind of our way of living, typically. We compartmentalize primarily in five categories, family, work, friends, faith, and recreation. Kind of five different categories. And what this does is it kind of creates hurry. Almost this spinning plates syndrome. You guys ever seen the game where they're spinning plates and they're running back and forth trying to keep the plates up? This creates spinning plates syndrome. When you compartmentalize your life into these categories as they're all separate. I got my, my work. I got my friends. I got my family. I got recreation. I'm just trying to keep them all up. And so what happens is before you know it, not only are you tired, but all your plates are falling down. And you're losing and you're getting beat by life. But the way of Jesus, the way of Jesus that I believe he's showing us is this yoke way of life where family, friends, faith, work record, all this is in the idea of abiding. Does this not seem much more simplistic? This is the good life. This is what rest for your souls looks like. Are there different aspects of your life? 100%. But the idea is that you're orienting your entire life around abiding in the way of Jesus. Taking his yoke upon you. If you want to experience the life of Jesus, this is key. Write this down. If you want to experience the life of Jesus, you must adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. You can't ooh and awe at the life of Jesus and go, man, I'd love to be like that and not adopt to the lifestyle of Jesus. You see a lot of these like runners who do like crazy marathons and they're out at, you know, 5 a.m. running and they got the gear on and all kinds of wild stuff. And you're like, I want to look like that, first of all, you know, and then you quickly realize I don't have what it takes to adopt that lifestyle. I don't. For us, if we want to experience the life of Jesus, we must adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. He says, let me carry the weight with you. Let me teach you. Learn from me. He says, my yoke is easy. Now, we hear easy, and we think of easy as an English understanding of easy. Like, oh, piece of cake, no big deal. But the word here in the Greek is the word Christos. Christos. And that word really means good or better or virtuous. So really... It's this idea of my yoke is good life. My yoke is better. My yoke is virtuous. This is the good life. He is saying that his way is the way of the good life. Not so much the easy life as we know it, but the better life. 
the unhurried, restful way of life, abiding in him, abiding in his presence. You know, the majority of Jesus' miracles were interruptions in his life. Most all of his miracles were interruptions. Very rarely is Jesus out seeking a miracle. He's only responding to what the Father's asking of him. Most all of his miracles are interruptions. And if you want to see the character of someone, see how they respond during the midst of interruptions. You want to see someone's integrity and character, see how they respond to interruptions. But Jesus is never in a hurry. He's never consumed by busyness. He's always available to what the Father has in store. Next week, we enter into the Advent season. And my challenge for us is, Corey, you can come on up and play as we wrap up. As we enter into Advent next week, my hope and prayer for all of us is that we embrace this season that we slow down, that we stop, that we sit, that we listen, and we prepare our hearts for what the Lord has for us over the next few weeks leading up to that manger moment, the coming of Christ. I hope we can sit and not let these next few weeks go by and let that catapult us into the new year. May we rest over the next few weeks in the knowledge that Jesus has come, that he's also coming. May we work out of rest. May we begin to create spaces, create a rule of life, reorient our time, look at our our schedule and figure out, does it align with kingdom values? Is Jesus Lord of my life? Have I adopted to the lifestyle of Jesus? Or am I just a groupie? Because if we're honest, a lot of us in the culture are groupies of Jesus. We're fanboys. He doesn't want fanboys. He wants disciples of the way. Committed. Let's pray together this morning.
running around trying to keep plates up. We're missing out on the good life. Help us to be intentional about examining our schedule, examining our time, examining busyness. Help us to know that there is no room for busyness in the kingdom. There's no room for hurry in the kingdom. Help us to be present, to not miss out on the beauty that's all around us. To not miss out on the presence. To create spaces to stop and to to sit, to listen. To embrace disciplines of abstinence.